Hello, and welcome to Warsaw Bursting Perspectives, our continuing series of podcasts to help you understand key issues at the intersection of business and law. Today, we will take a little different look at divorce as a business transaction with Eric Rubel, the chair of the matrimonial and family law practice at the New York-based law firm Warshaw Burstein, where he is also a partner. I'm Tom Merriam. And Eric, of course, people know divorce from the emotional sense. We even know some of the legalities that are involved when you get to a divorce settlement. But thinking of it as a business transaction is a very different viewpoint for a lot of people. It's really not. In fact, it's a, it, this New York State legislature looks at marriage as an economic partnership. And that's the whole point. Acquiring assets, increasing income, that's the whole point of marriage, to, to increase what we have and, and, and use it. And in fact, many times when I'm in court and we're talking about settlements, the judge, in fact, recently in one of my cases said, ask the other side to provide a counteroffer to our offer because he referenced the fact that my client is a businessman and wants to make a decision based upon the factors that he sees fit. And what are some of those factors? Well, it's a matter, they, they can be many different things. First you have to do, though, is identify what the assets are. People bring assets to the marriage, and that could be separate property. Once you've identified what's not marital, meaning what you've brought to the marriage, what you've inherited, you have to then, that's what's left over, is the marital pot. Once you've identified what the assets are that you're going to divide, you then have to value them. And that's key valuing the assets and you want to look at that ahead of time you want to look at that before you're getting divorced you want to know what your assets are worth what they could be worth and what you could do to influence their values and one of the factors is figuring out uh, what assets belong to whom or maybe percentage-wise how they belong to one or another partner correct so it's not necessarily a 50 50 division of assets the Personal assets, the home, the securities accounts, those would generally get divided 50-50. But a business in New York is not divided 50-50. A business in New York is typically divided at a much smaller ratio. The business owner keeps a far larger share of the value of the business than the non-titled spouse. I assume there's disputes between the parties, since they're already obviously at opposite ends, the fact that they're getting divorced and emotions come into play as to what the values are, as to one partner might think that 75% is his or hers, and the other might say, no, that 75% is mine. And of course, that doesn't equal 100%. Correct. But, but we also have to look at um, how the asset is valued. And that's critical to, to what the percentage is going to be later on. Um, and, and doing that, um, you want to look at many different things in terms of the risks associated with an asset. If an asset has an income stream, is it, a, is it high risk? Is it something that, that could dry up tomorrow? Um, you want to look at the historical earnings of the asset that's going to be valued. That's very important because most times it is historical earnings that an appraiser uses to determine the value of an asset. Even the selection of the appraiser could influence the number. Some appraisers are, are much more um, risk averse. Some uh, use um, cap rates that are, are higher. So that who you select is very important in terms of the number that you may want to receive. Even the, to the point of, in, in our cases in New York, judges typically appoint a neutral. One appraiser to value the asset that represents the court. 
In some instances, I don't agree to have a neutral. I want my own appraiser or, and the other person gets an appraiser. In the alternative, if the court really wants us to have a neutral, I may bring in someone quietly. No one knows that they're in the background and they will, they will help me shape the, the number that I want to get. One of the complicating factors is taking the historical earnings and projecting to the future and what happened in the past may not occur in the future. Absolutely. And in fact, with our new tax law, the tax rates are different so that the earnings of a company five years ago are going to be different than the earnings in the next five years. Usually an appraiser uses five years of earnings to determine the future. So you have different tax rates, you have different depreciation schedules now. These all impact the number that, a, that an appraiser is going to come up with. It has to. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, remind everybody that they're listening to Warshaw Bursting Perspectives, the podcast of the New York-based law firm Warshaw Bursting. And today we're looking at divorce as a business transaction with Eric Rubel, who's the chair of the matrimonial and family law practice at Warshaw Bursting. And we were just talking about the new tax law and the impact it has. And I don't think people immediately thought that it could have such an impact on divorces, but it obviously does. So if you can get into that a little bit here, and particularly as we look at it in the context as a business transaction. Sure. So with the, with the new tax code, you have different tax rates for businesses. There's going to be a, an effect on, on what their earnings are going to be, meaning they're supposed to have more money at the end of the day with the new tax code. That has to also do with the depreciation schedules that have been put in place. So the company, by, by virtue of having greater earnings, will likely have a greater value when it comes to divorce. That could be true or it may not be true depending upon what tax planning a person does. If someone knows that they're going to be getting divorced in a year or two, they may want to make certain decisions about how they handle the taxes for the company or their earnings and what appears so that their earnings could be less prior to the, to the commencement of the divorce action. And that will influence the appraiser's value of the business. It could also be in terms of um, the, the cash basis or accrual basis of accounting. That can influence a, the value of a business. It's probably worthwhile if, if someone is a business owner to have a discussion with an attorney and a forensic accountant or a business valuator to look at their business. How will it be valued? What are the risks? What are the possible numbers? And what can that person do now to influence the value later before they commence the action. Because once you commence the action, it's too late. The die is cast, the earnings are in, the returns are in, the P&Ls are in. But now is the time to look at those numbers. How difficult is it for people to look at those numbers when they're going through all the emotional aspects of a divorce and a lot of the personal repercussions of a divorce? Well. Typically, if it's the business owner, they're looking at it as a business transaction. This is their business. They're making business decisions. So most times, the emotion is out. For the non-titled spouse, it is much more emotional because there's a great deal of unknown for the non-titled spouse. They don't know the business. They don't know the numbers. But they can find out information. They can look at get tax returns. They can look at statements. Many times people leave, th leave things around, um, and 
even the standard of living is a good is a good way to determine how healthy a business is. Another complicating factor potentially for many divorcing couples is what happens with the children? Maybe there's been something set up already for a succession plan or, or an estate. So how do you factor that in? That happens many times. Many people um, create trusts and place assets in trusts for future generations. Once those assets are in a trust, they are generally outside of um, the divorce if it is placed in an irrevocable trust. Sometimes people place assets into revocable trust and continue to use the assets so that when the grantor continues to use the assets and have the benefit of those, sometimes a court looks at it as those, those assets are still in the marriage and will consider them part of the marriage. I want to get back to one other aspect of the new tax law, and that's real estate taxes with the deductibility now capped at $10,000. What does that do to the value of a residence? Well, I think it's going to have a major impact, especially in, in uh, Manhattan and Westchester and possibly Long Island. I think that those are going to affect the value of residences. We may see a stall in the real estate market. We may see prices starting to come down so that the residents may not be as, as valuable to the parties as they once thought. Reminder to everybody that you're listening to Washaw Burstein Perspectives, the podcast of the New York-based law firm Washaw Burstein. Today we're talking with Eric Rubel, who's the chair of the Matrimonial and Family Law Practice at Washaw Burstein, and we're talking about divorce as a business transaction. And Eric, let's pick up the discussion a little bit in terms of assets. Uh, once they've been identified and valued, now comes the issue of dividing them up. Yeah, that's the hard part. And, and the most difficult part, I think, sometimes is is structuring the settlement. And really, it's the structure. It's not so much numbers, but structure in terms of who's getting what and how the assets are, are being divided and, and what the payment terms are. That can be very, very difficult. Is it a payment over time? Is interest going to be applied? Generally in New York, if a party receives interest on their equitable distribution award, it is taxable to the recipient, but it is not deductible by the payor. So it's a lost, it's a, it's a lost amount. Only the New York State and the federal government actually are the, are the beneficiaries of that tax. Um, sometimes, it, and you have to decide who's going to retain an asset. And in retaining an asset, there are generally tax taxes that are um, carried with the asset so that if you have a securities account that the parties have owned for many years there could be capital gains taxes inherent in those assets just like a house when you own a home you have you have um, capital gains taxes inherent in in the value of the house you also have exemptions so that when the parties if they were to sell their home and they were married there's a $500,000 exemption. If one party sells it after getting the divorce, there's only a $250,000 exemption. However, if the parties are in agreement to sell the house, they should sell the house um, before the judgment of divorce is entered, file a joint tax return, and receive the $500,000 exemption, thereby saving the marital estate significant capital gains. But it's all in the planning, and the parties have to be in agreement and in a settlement in order to do that. So let's get to the structure of the deal, how that comes into play. Let's start, first of all, structuring the settlement itself. 
that's that's based on um, looking at the cash involved, the hard assets, the businesses, the homes, and understanding who is going to keep what. Generally, there are generally businesses um, are not divided in kind, so that the business owner retains their their interest. However, I have had a case recently where my client owned 51% of the business, and part of the structure of the settlement was was taking his interest, placing it in an LLC with he and his wife, so that she then had a percentage of the interest. We did this because the, the interest that she was receiving was worth several millions of dollars, and we when getting the the money we asked her what is she going to do with it and basically she had no idea what to do with the money so rather than liquidate and give her cash my client who was one of the best money managers and 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 and, and gentlemen doing this she basically acknowledged she would make more money leaving the money with him and be at a better return than anyone else in new york and so they did that and so they created the llc and she gets to pull out her interest slowly so that he has time to redeem. She is earning money. She is earning interest and, 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 and a great rate of return on her, on her interest. And we built in a, a time period where she could slowly redeem. She was quite happy, and my client didn't have to liquidate immediately to pay her tens of millions of dollars. So it's important to determine the payments over time versus more immediate payments. Absolutely. So, so payments over time is a time factor of money. If you're going to get money over 10 years, it's not worth what it is today. And sometimes people are skittish about waiting 10 years. Someone could declare bankruptcy, and in a bankruptcy, equal distribution awards are wiped out. But if someone is willing to wait, then the payments over time, could be, you, you would get them. If you don't want to wait, you then um, do a, a quicker payout. However, there's a cost to that because the, t- the time factor of money, someone who wants a payment sooner is going to have to accept less. And then there's interest on the payments. There can be interest on the payments as well, yes. There's prejudgment interest and post-judgment interest in New York. Um, and, and if awarded by a court, that interest could be 9%, which is judgment interest, which is, you know, no one has seen 9% in probably 20 years as a rate of return on an investment. It certainly has been a while. And let's talk a little bit about the retention of assets, too, as they factor into the uh, ultimate settlement. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes the, the retention of assets has to do with just retaining the, the uh, marital residence. And because there are young children or um, children are finishing up in high school, the parties may agree that one party retains the marital residence until a child finishes high school and goes off to college. At that point, the house is sold and the net proceeds are divided. It gets a little complicated in terms of servicing um, mortgage and utilities and, and how everything gets paid, making sure the insurance is paid, because one party is living there and maintaining an asset in which another party has an interest. It's complicated, but definitely doable and can, can really be good for the family in terms of continuity for the children. Now, the complicating factor, tax-deferred assets. Yes, tax-deferred assets are definitely complicated. Those are generally retirement assets, but can also be um, what's called restricted stock units or stock options. And those get complicated 
very much so because they're not necessarily paid out at the time of a judgment of divorce. Those typically typically get paid out sometime after the asset vests, which means the person has to continue working in the business or employment of someone in order for those assets to vest, and then they're finally paid out. They're only paid out to the holder of the asset, meaning you can't, on an RSU or a stock option, give the non-title spouse 25 or 50% of the asset. The holder has to retain it, it, they receive it. Once they receive it, they pay tax, and then they, they receive the asset. And at that point, after the tax, is when the non-titled spouse would receive their share. So that the, the title holder is actually holding it for the non-titled spouse. With retirement assets, such as IRAs or 401ks, those can be moved to another person um, pretty easily. We use what's called a qualified domestic relations order, and the quadro allows the, um, the, the institution, Merrill Lynch, Fidelity, to take a 401k and take a portion of it and move it to someone else's IRA tax-free. That's the most important part with deferred comp, is that you want to make sure if there's any transfers of assets between an IRA and an IRA, a 401k and an IRA, that they're done through a quadro. If you just transfer the asset yourself, you're immediately going to be hit with a tax, which is the income tax, and a penalty. That you don't want to do. And using the word immediate, all of these are not always settled immediately. There's a buyout schedule sometimes to wind it down. Absolutely. So sometimes you, you will have, as the that other case that I referred to, um, Someone has an interest, and there will be a payout schedule or a buyout of the interest over time so that one party has time to accumulate cash to pay out the other person's interest. Many of the interests that, that people hold today are illiquid. Homes are illiquid. Um, 401ks are illiquid. A business interest is illiquid, even though fair market value is used as the, as the basis for valuation of a business it's still a liquid. You still have to find a willing buyer and a willing seller to sell it. And, and, and that's not necessarily the case, nor does a, a business holder want to sell their business immediately in order to, to pay out their ex-spouse. Eric Rubel, you gave a solid insight into divorce as a business transaction. Thanks so much for sharing your knowledge here on Washaw Bursting Perspectives. And if any of our listeners would like to reach out to you to learn more specifically about divorce or any other issues concerning matrimonial and family law, how can they do that? Uh, they can reach me at my email, which is E-W-R-U-B-E-L at W-B-N-Y dot com, or um, call us at 212 984 7700. That's our main switchboard, and our receptionist will connect you. And please go to WBNY.com for other Warshaw Bursting Perspectives podcasts and for more information about the Warshaw Bursting Law Firm. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Ariel.